Wasn't that an incredible time of worship with all these students or kids that grew up in our church? And uh, if you've been here and watching them grow up, you were very encouraged. I know like I was just to see how God's worked in their lives. And now they're leading us with the voice of angels is what I felt like I was listening to, except for the three boys that snuck in somehow. I'm not sure how those boys got in, but uh, no, I'm kidding. Grateful for all of them. Uh, If you haven't made it to the baskets on the way in, would you go ahead and just get up now? Sorry, but uh, these are the Lord's Supper elements that are in these baskets by the doors, and you're going to need them during the service. We're not going to pause, so you'll go ahead and get up now and go get you the Lord's Supper uh, elements, and uh, there's no problem with that. Glad that you're doing it now so you can participate. As you do that, I'll review where we've been. We're in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, and we're going to cover verses 1 through 15, but do you remember, remember what's been going on in the story? Um, the people rejected God as their king, and they demanded a human king like all the other nations, and God said, well, this is tantamount to rejecting me. Uh, we don't want a king, I mean, we don't want a God, we have to have faith, they were saying. We want a guy that we can point to and trust that he will be our military warrior and give us a sense of safety and security. But in doing that, God also said, now listen, you're, 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 going to, you're inviting yourself a lot of problems because you're going to come uh, enslaved to this king. Any, anything that you make your God other than the one true God, you're going to see that, that that king just keeps taking from you, taking from you over and over, and it's never going to satisfy. And then as the people said, we want our king anyway, you would, you would have hoped they would immediately fell into some difficult circumstances, right? But they didn't. What happened? King Saul actually did a great job at first. He uh, led them to, to reject or to push back the Ammonites that were coming down. Remember, the Na- Naash was his name. His name meant snake. Well, he defeated Naash. And so it actually puts the Israelites in a very dangerous position. They're not tasting the the bitter consequences of their sin of rejecting God. In fact, they seem to be getting away with it and feeling pretty good about it because, look, the king just protected us. See, we told you we needed a king. And so God, in his grace, sent Samuel in chapter 12, 24, and these verses are key because these are the last things of chapter 12 as we come to chapter 13. And Samuel said... As you're reveling in your sin, rejoicing in the fact that you're getting away with rejecting God as your king, he says, fear the Lord, serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. So the motivation to to fear the Lord, to serve the Lord with all your heart, is all the great things he has done for you. And then he has a warning. He says, but if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And with that warning still ringing in the air, we get to chapter 13, and we're going to get a zeroing in on the early stages of Saul's reign as king with the warning, the gracious promise, if you'll turn now, and, and start wholeheartedly serving the Lord because motivated by all the great things he's done, it'll go well with you and your king. But if you don't, if you continue to, to walk on the path you're on, continue to reject him as your Lord, continue to disobey him, if you don't, then you're going to be swept away, both you and your king. My prayer is that we learn from Saul's life this morning that we learn what God requires of us. 
And what God requires of us is wholehearted obedience. Not partial obedience. Full, wholehearted obedience. Lord, we ask for your help this morning, heeding this lesson. May we learn the lesson from, from the King Saul's life. May we not have to walk through the, the consequences of rejecting you. May we repent now because we see in your word a great gift, a great warning that we might wholeheartedly obey you and not deceive ourselves and think that it's okay to give you some partial disobedience or some partial obedience. It's in Christ's precious, glorious name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to look at chapter 13, and we're going to look at Saul's early career, some days in his early reign as king, and we're going to see, first of all, Saul's success. We all enjoy times of success, and, and we see Saul begins with some really successful season of his, of his career as the king, but then we're going to see Saul's stress, Saul's stress, and after we see Saul's stress, we're going to look at Saul's sacrifice, and so it's really a picture of our own lives unfolding before us and my prayer again is that we'll learn the lessons from Saul first of all Saul's success look at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 13 and look at how successful Saul was in the early days it says Saul lived now let me see what for one year my translation says one year anyone raise your hand if you have a different translation that says like some other number than one year Anyone? Yeah. So this is a really hard to translate passage. Verse one, you're, you're, you should take great confidence in your Bible because anytime there's a little, little something that's hard to translate, there's a very carefully noted footnote that says, of all the research that we have, we're not sure exactly what number should go here. And so that shouldn't cause doubt. That should actually cause great confidence in your Bible. So we don't know exactly the years that were recorded here, but we know it's early in Saul's reign. And then you get to verse 2 and we hear how, how well it was going. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash. All the children in the room, say that with me. Michmash. Isn't that a fun word to say? In a minute, they're going to say muster and Micmash. I thought a Micmash sandwich, that would be awesome. So anyway, so 2,000 were with Saul at Micmash and the hill country of Bethel. And then there was 1,000 who were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. And the rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. So look, go home, enjoy your family, work your fields. Verse 3. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. So what we have here, if you pause there for a minute, we have Saul experiencing an incredible season of success. Life is good. He's managing a standing army. He's got 3,000. He's got 2,000 with him. He's got 1,000 with his son, Jonathan. His son, Jonathan, has proven to be a valiant warrior. Jonathan is defeating the Philistines. And the word goes out, man, Saul is killing it. 
Saul is having a banner year. We're, we're getting exactly what we asked for. We wanted a human king that was a very capable, mighty warrior to fight for us. And we're getting exactly what we asked for. In fact, that's what the name Saul means, the one asked for. And so they're getting it. And, and they, they're feeling pretty good about themselves. And, and the problem is we're going to see that in times of success, oftentimes there's a lot going on in our heart that's not pleasing to the Lord. And that's what we're going to see in a minute. But first, let's just enjoy with Saul. He's getting the word is going out. He's getting a reputation. It's all out through the land that Saul is a great king. He's having military victories. But the problem is there's this little cloud on the horizon as it, it seems to be. Isn't that how it seems to be in life? It's like everything's going good. And sometimes if we're a little cynical, we're like, something bad is about to happen. Why do you say that? Because everything's going so good. Well, I think that's what's going on here in the text. We see on the horizon that that they become a stench in the nostrils of the Philistines. So they have aroused the giant. They have gotten the giant, the Philistines, upset because of this defeat uh, that Jonathan led. And so what we see is we transition from Saul's success, where they're getting the one that they asked for, is giving them exactly what they asked for so far. But now we're going to see Saul's stress. Turn with me to verses 5 through 8 and listen to the stress that Saul falls under in verses 5 through 8 it says and the Philistines there's the mustard mustard to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots you may have 3,000 again they have a footnote saying it might have been three it might have been 30 but clearly they were overwhelmed because it says and 6,000 horsemen and troops so many that it was like the sand on the seashore in the multitude so there's Thousands and thousands gathering of, of Philistine warriors gathering at Michmash where Saul had just been before he came down to, to this new town. It says, and they came up and they encamped at Michmash to the east of beth Aven. Now when the men, verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that, saw that they were in trouble for they were pressed, they were hard pressed, what did they do? They ran. They bolted. They hid themselves in caves and in holes and rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews even crossed the fords of the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. And so Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him. How are they following him? They're trembling. So fear is setting in as the people are following Saul still, but some are deserting, heading to caves and holes and, and hiding. The ones that are falling are trembling. And then verse 8 says, and I'll have to explain a little bit what's going on when we get into verse 8, but I want to read it now. He waited seven days. This is what Saul does. The stress is coming in. The people, the enemies are approaching. The people are deserting. They're all getting afraid. Saul waits his seven days, which was the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. So pause there. So we have this scene where set stress is setting in on Saul. The massive Philistine army is approaching, so much so it's as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And the troops, his own people, are failing. They're running scared. And so Saul is under enormous stress. And, and what do we know about life? That when life happens, we're like a sponge. 
Kids, have you ever seen a sponge laying around the house? And you said, huh, I wonder what this is. And you, you squeeze it and you're like, oh, this nasty, stinky water just came out of that sponge. Well, that's the way life is. When stress hits, we're like sponges. And when we get squeezed by stress, we see what's inside of us. We see what we're really made of. And that's what we're going to see here is that Saul is being squeezed by the stress of life. And what we see is Saul is a pragmatic, self-reliant man. He's had some signs of being a guy who, who wants to give God the glory and depend on God. But what we see is when stress squeezes Saul, he quickly reveals that he is a pragmatic, got to do whatever it takes to get the job done, self-reliant man. I think we all can connect with this tendency that when, when stress starts to happen, a lot of this talk about trusting God goes out the window and we realize, I, I got to take care of things. See, Saul is, is stressed, especially because Saul is feeling the weight of the world on his shoulders. And when you feel the weight on the world of your shoulders, it should be a reminder I apparently think that it's all up to me. And that's what Saul has been doing. Saul, the people said, it's all you, Saul. And Saul says, yeah, it's all me. And when all is going well, he's like, yeah, I'm killing it. But as soon as stress hits, he starts to feel the weight of the world on his shoulders and the weight of the people's expectations on him. And he's starting to crumble under that weight. He was never designed to carry that weight God warned him you don't want to go down this road you aren't the king the king was always supposed to be one who simply said I'm not the real king here God's the king and his job was as Deuteronomy 17 I believe it was said is that any king that you choose should have a copy of God's word at his right hand. He should be a man of the book, a man of the word of God, and he should constantly be calling you to trust the real king and to obey his word. But in this case, we see that's not the kind of king they wanted. They wanted a king who was the man. And now that he's the man, he's got the, world of the, the weight of the world crashing down on him and as this weight squeezes him we see what comes out of him and it's this section we're calling Saul's sacrifice look at Saul's sacrifice this is what he does as the stress sets in upon him with very real world problems crashing in on him what does he do look at verse 9 it says so Saul said well bring me the offering bring the offering here to me and the peace offerings and he offered the burnt offering. Now, as soon as he finished, I mean, as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, which I'll tell you in advance, this is disobedience. As soon as he finished this terrible decision to compromise, to disobey, just as soon as he finished offering that burnt offering, behold, here comes Samuel. Oh, great. Saul went out to meet Samuel. Hey, hey, Samuel, what's up, man? Samuel said, what have you done? Pause there. What have you done? Saul, tell me, what have you done? Now, let me ask you something. I'm kind of help you re get your head wrapped around the scene because there's a lot of back and forth, but here's the scene. Philistines are coming. Saul's under stress. He disobeys. He compromises. I'll explain what a minute how he did it. 
Samuel, right as soon as he's done, comes up and says, what have you done? What would you say he's done? He disobeyed. That's exactly right. But if he's justifying sin, the first time I read this, I thought, man, this is pretty harsh on Saul. I was like, the dude, what would I say he's done? He took care of business. I mean, he had to do this. You got the Philistines coming. You don't want to be so spiritual that you're no earthly good. Y'all hearing me? I mean, I know that my spouse and I, we prayed about it and we thought that God called us and told us to give to this ministry or to support this missionary, but that was before the car broke down. I know God told me after I got saved to get baptized, but then they told me it's my immersion and I'm gonna get all my hair wet and not wear makeup and everybody's gonna see me. And half the women said, glory, amen. I can go, Kevin Wilsey does a great job going through the, the baptism training and how we, we think that the Bible teaches that after salvation, you should be baptized by immersion and all this theology and all this biblical teaching. And you go, if you then go, okay, I'm convicted. If you're not convicted, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm just saying those of you who clearly see this is God's command, and then you say, but I'm afraid, or I don't want to offend, or I don't want to be embarrassed, or I don't want. What is it that God has clearly, I'm, let's take all the stuff off the table that you're not sure about. Let's just put the stuff on the table that you know God has said, do this. A lot of it is black and white in the scriptures. Some of it you just know, God's told me this is what I should be doing. What is it that you say, I know God's told me to do this, huge or small, but what does Saul do? He compromised. He disobeyed when he got under stress. And the author says as he continues, Continue in verse 11, he says, And Saul said, well, here's what happened. When I saw that the people were scattering from me, it's their fault. You see, because all, my, all my, my people were leaving me. Oh, and then when I saw that you didn't come, Samuel, it's your fault. You didn't come when I, when I was expecting you to come, which is not true, but it's what he says. It's your fault, Samuel. It's their fault, Samuel. Oh, or when I saw the Philistines had gathered at Micmash, it's their fault. That's why I did what I did. That's why I compromised. You see, there's a real good explanation here. Sounds a lot like Adam in the garden when God said, what are you doing? Who told you that? Why are you doing that? No, well, it's your fault. You gave me the woman. Verse 12. I said... Well, now the Philistines are going to come down, pragmatic here, just get what, get, got to get done. They were going to come down against me at Gilgal, and I haven't sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself. This is so silly. So I forced myself and offered this burnt offering. I didn't want to, but you put me in a bind, Samuel. And Samuel said, Saul, you have done foolishly. You know, the biblical definition of a fool is, is one who lives as if there is no God. 
you have lived as if there is no God who told you to wait. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. Now, like I said, the first time I read this, I was like, golly, that's harsh, man. Samuel was in a bind. I mean, Saul was in a bind. And I mean, all this was crashing in on him. And, and he, tried to, he tried to, he tried to be faith. Maybe he didn't. Maybe he's just justifying, making excuses and sprinkling a little religion on it. That's what the author says. If you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 10, turn your Bibles back to 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8, you see the problem. Is it was real clear what he was supposed to do, and he just didn't do it, and now he's just justifying, he's blaming, and he's sprinkling a little religious sacrifice on it to make himself feel better. It says in 10 verse 8, Samuel says to Saul. Now, who is Samuel? Samuel is God's word to Saul. That's like you opening your Bible, and God said... Samuel said to Saul, then go down before me, go down to Gilgal. Well, that's the scene we're reading about. He's at Gilgal. And he said, and behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Samuel said, that's what Samuel was going to do, was going to come down and, and offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. And he said, seven days you will wait until I come to you and I will show you what you shall do, period. End of discussion, crystal clear. God has spoken to Saul. You wait until I give you further instructions. Sometimes the hardest obedience in the world to do is wait. Wait on the Lord. Wait Samuel says, until I, being God's word, comes to you and tells you what you should do next. And he says, and you fool. What's the lesson here? Here's the lesson. He partially obeyed. He said, go to Gilgal. He left Michmash and he went down to Gilgal. And it was a real good thing he obeyed because he would have been dead if he hadn't because the Philistines crashed in on Michmash. So his obedience thus far has saved his life and brought him down to Gilgal. Now, as he sees the Philistines gathering at Michmash, he says, oh, I got to take matters into my own. I'm going to disobey God to save my life. You fool, is what the prophet says to him. And how many times have I been foolish like that? Here's the point. Write this down. Inscribe this on your heart. Partial obedience is complete disobedience. Y'all want to say that with me? Let's read that aloud together so no one leaves here saying, oh, I didn't know. Partial obedience is complete disobedience. I added the word complete after that slide was made. Partial obedience is complete disobedience. You see, the problem is the very essence of what it means to be a child of God, a Christ follower, throughout your scriptures, the very definition of what it meant to be a person of God, the people of God, is to hear and obey the word of God. It's to listen and obey. It's to trust God enough to obey God. Trust 
and obey. That's what it means to be a child of God. And that's what it was supposed to mean to be the king that God chose is that God's king would say, I'm not really your king. He's your king. My job is to say as the authority in your life, obey the king. Simple as that. Just obey him, not partially, all the way. How many parents are okay with partial obedience with your children? Go in there, clean your room, make your bed. An hour later, they'll come out. You go, did you do it? Uh Uh-huh. You go in there. No, you made your bed. Your room is a disaster. Well, that's good enough, right? Never. Partial obedience is complete disobedience. Look at the tragic consequences of this disobedience, of this partial obedience. Verse 13 continues, For then the Lord, if you hadn't done this, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The the warning in verse 12, If you don't repent, you will be swept away, both you and your king. It just happened. Now your kingdom will be swept away from you. Another way to read that verse would be that the Messiah... If you had been the one who perfectly obeyed, wholeheartedly obeyed the Lord, you would have been the Messiah. As readers, we're looking for a king who will perfectly obey the Lord, who will perfectly obey the word of God, who will be the true king. And it's not Saul. And and the way that Samuel, the book of Samuel, is using this king is to say, we're looking for a king not like Saul, but a king who's more like David who he says in verse 14, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be the prince over his people because you have not kept the Lord, you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul, it's over. At this point, we already know, King Saul, your kingdom is over. God's already found a different king. Now he's gonna remain in that position for a while, but all these consequences are gonna catch up to him. It's very simple. Why is Saul not king? Because he doesn't have a heart to obey the Lord. And God's going to find David, a man whose heart is one to obey the Lord. Was, you already know enough the story to know, was David perfect? Did, Did David perfectly obey the Lord? No. But here's the difference. He was a man after God's own heart. When he, was, when he sinned and was confronted, we have Psalms written over the beauty of his repentance, his confession, his repentance. What does Saul do when he sins and he's confronted? It's not my fault. You put me in this place. It's their fault. It's their fault. It's their fault. It's not my fault. He says, and that's why you're going to face some tragic consequences. So Samuel, in verse 15, arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. When they went up from Gilgal and Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, there were about 600. This is the decline of Saul's kingdom. So what are we seeing here? When Saul was put under stress, it became real clear who Saul was depending upon, and it was himself And that often happens in our lives that sometimes we see things we don't like when we're put under stress. Let this be a reminder to trust the Lord, repent now, follow the Lord with wholeheartedness, consider all the great things he has done for you and turn to him now or be swept away. 
This is what salvation is. This is how we come to know the Lord as our Savior, is when we realize that we have that partial obedience isn't enough. You can't sprinkle a little religion on top of partial obedience and be okay with God. It's like what Jonathan said, realizing that I can't be, I can't perform well enough. I have to just trust Christ did it all for me, that he is the king who fully satisfies the obedience requirement that is on my life. Jesus is the perfect obedient lamb of God who gave his life on the cross to pay the price that I deserve for my partial obedience, which is absolutely complete disobedience because I'm a self-reliant, pragmatic sinner. And I would invite you to consider if you are as well. And so today, the chapter 12, 25 said, consider what great things he's done for you and turn to him now and serve him with the whole heart. That's what the Lord's Supper is designed to do. That's what the baptism, Jesus said, do two things over and over. And as you do them, remember me, baptism and Lord's Supper. And we get to remember in both ways this morning. So I want you to open the Lord's Supper elements and expose the wafer and the juice so that you can partake it. And I want this to be a time of remembering what great things the Lord has done for you. Why? So that you might turn from your self-reliant, pragmatic, disobedience, partial obedience, and turn to trust Christ and obey him wholeheartedly. Give him all you got. Why? Because he gave you all he had. Stop making excuses, stop blaming others, and start owning your sin and transferring it to Jesus on the cross. Would you close your eyes and just meditate for a moment on what great things the Lord has done for you? In a moment, you're going to take this wafer, and it's a, it's a symbol, it's a reminder of the fact that Jesus gave his body for you and for me that his side was pierced for our transgressions, his blood was spilled for the new covenant. And by trusting in Christ, you're united with Christ. You were united with his death. You were united with his burial as is pictured in baptism. And you were united with his resurrection so that those who are in Christ are resurrected from the grave. They are promised eternal life. Though their bodies go to the grave, they live eternally resurrected from the grave. And Jesus adopts you. He makes you his own. He loves you. He says, I have a purchased an inheritance for you that all the spiritual blessings that are in the heavenly places all the spiritual blessings that are Christ are bestowed upon you and he will give them to you as his child what a glorious inheritance we have think about all the great things he's done to you think about all the great things he's done for you in your life in the times of glorious success, think about him and his faithfulness. See those as his blessings in your life and let those motivate you to quit the partial obedience, thinking I'll sprinkle a little quiet time or religion on that and understand that that is complete disobedience. Consider what great things he has done for you this morning.
as the Lord met with his disciples on the night that he was going to go and give his body on the cross and his blood on the cross. The night he was betrayed, he took some bread, he passed it around the table, and when he had given thanks, he broke that bread, one piece, one loaf, shared among many, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. If you're trusting in the body of Jesus Christ as the punishment that was yours, if you're trusting only in Christ for the forgiveness of sin, and together we eat. Remembering that his body was pierced for our transgressions. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. If you know that the blood of Jesus Christ is the only hope for the forgiveness of your sins, drink this and do this in remembrance of Christ. Lord, you said as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, that we are proclaiming your death. And Lord, you said that when we make disciples, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we have remembered and proclaimed that this morning, that you are our King. And we want to think about all the great things you've done for us. And we want to absolutely commit to wholehearted obedience from this day forward so that you are glorified in our life. And it's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.